0: This is How to Read. I'm Milan.
1: And I'm Olivia, the producer of this episode. Today we're talking with Jonathan Culler, a scholar of poetry from the ancient world to the present. This episode is about the weird ways that poems address their readers.
0: Many poems speak to a you who is not you, the reader. And when a poem addresses an inanimate object, like an urn or even a bar of soap, it's especially clear that readers aren't being addressed directly. But Jonathan Culler argues that these poems do address their readers, it's just indirect. Poems that address goddesses, fictional characters, and even inanimate objects allow readers to relate to the you and the I of a poem in complex, fluid, and surprising ways. Jonathan Culler, welcome.
2: Thank you. It's a pleasure to be
0: here. So you've been studying the ways that poems address their readers. Mm -hmm. Can you give an example of a poem where the address is really important?
2: Well, most poems, though they're destined for readers, don't address readers directly. Of course, poems are aimed at readers, but they often do this indirectly. The cases that particularly interest me are where they address readers by pretending to or uh, by addressing something else, whether another person, a character, an object, a a season, an urn, a nightingale. (laughs) So it can be be all kinds of things. All kinds of things. Goddesses. Uh, So a good example from the Greek poet Sappho is an ode to Aphrodite, which starts out, Oh, intricate, immortal Aphrodite, snare weaver, child of Zeus, I implore you, do not tame my spirit, great goddess, and goes on asking Aphrodite to come to her
0: aid. So in that case, it, it is the poem within the, within the language itself is addressed to Aphrodite, the goddess, mm-hmm. but it's intended... Listenership is Mm -hmm, a a different group of people.
2: That's right. So probably the simplest thing to do is to distinguish between the addressee, which is who the poem is explicitly addressed to in terms of pronouns, if it says you to someone or something, and then the audience, which is those to whom it is actually destined.
0: And and within that Sappho poem, just those words, uh, I implore you, Mm Um, so the U there is Aphrodite. Mm-hmm. The U is the goddess. And yes. the I is the speaker, a speaker. A speaker. who you mm-hmm. might call Sappho or might be a mm-hmm. character. Mm-hmm. But... Um, Where do readers stand in relation to that I and that you?
2: Mm -hmm. Well, that's a complicated case, isn't it, Sappho? Today, it's harder for 21st century readers to identify with with someone imploring the goddess Aphrodite to to help them out. So I think we're probably less likely to occupy that place.
0: And even with with that I in Sappho, it's Mm -hmm. like if you... Even if you don't identify with that mm-hmm, I, there's yeah. still a sense of sort of imagi- like imaginatively entering into Imagitive the thoughts of... Yes,
2: yes. Uh, it's partly because to read the poem is to sort of repeat this gesture of
0: address. Yeah, and the, I guess the other side of that is the you there. Is there a way in which, y- as a reader, you might read that you and momentarily wonder like maybe am i the you am i being addressed Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. here
2: yeah yeah no certainly poems where it's very indeterminate these "you"s in poetry are sort of fungible it can be the poet it can be a
0: reader or it can be somebody else entirely like these slots that can kind of be interchangeable a bit
2: i think that's right Mm -hmm. yes yeah um,
0: so i mean it's it seems to me like when we're thinking about poems and who they address mm -hmm. that well firstly there's often this indirectness mm-hmm, that they yeah. seem to be, they have an addressee that is not the real audience mm-hmm, yeah. um, or the imagined audience, but also that even within those categories of addressee and audience, there's often a kind of blurring mm-hmm. or ambiguity. Often, often ambiguity, um, yeah. 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 So I, I'm wondering, could we start with a poem by the ancient Roman poet Horace, mm-hmm. um, where it's a a person a human being mm-hmm. yeah. addressed yes. and and see how that works and then mm-hmm. look at some of these other types sure. of
2: yeah. address here. yeah most of horace's odes are addressed to someone there are a few that are addressed to an object or to a god or or something but most addressed to a person many of them thought to be fictional but uh, this is uh, the shortest of horace's odes the one that contains this famous uh, phrase carpe diem seize the day uh, yes. seize the day is addressed to someone called luconone whom we don't know anything about telling luconone don't ask we're not allowed to know what end the gods have assigned to me to you luconone and don't try the babylonian horoscopes be wise strain the wine and that is to get the wine ready for drinking cut back large hopes to small compass so, restrain your wishes. Don't be too ambitious. While we speak, envious time flies past. Seize the day, trusting as little as possible <laughs> to tomorrow. So, this good, the carpe, good advice, diem. carpe diem. But that's certainly kind of advice that's being offered to, to everyone, to all readers. But I think yeah. it does make a difference if it's addressed in principle to a person.
0: Yeah, it's less preachy, isn't it's less it? Preachy. You're yeah. not saying, you
2: must all seize the day. You're, saying, you're giving this advice, and readers can take it seriously or not as they wish. So make yeah. it, make it less preachy. And, and also, when you read it, you will be saying, seize the day, too. And, right, and so you're both
0: hearing the advice, mm-hmm. but you're also so sort also of repeating it. mentally giving the advice. That's right, that's right. Yeah. 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 No, I think that's a, you have these sort of more generalized mm-hmm. pieces of advice or sort of mm-hmm. ob- observations about yeah. the world, yeah. and those sort of float free of this apparent address that is happening yeah, within I think, the poem. I think so, yes. So could, could we turn to another example? Yes. Just before you do that, mm-hmm. I'm going to test this T okay. and see whether it is looking the right color.
2: Okay. I mean, the examples of, the clearest examples of what I call triangulated address where a poet is implicitly addressing an audience while pretending to address something else.
0: So that's like a, a, tr- a triangle of, of the poet, the, the addressee, and, and the audience. And the audience, that's right.
2: That's, right. that's the triangle. So poems like Keats' Ode on a Grecian Urn, where the speaker addresses the urn, now still unravished bride of quietness, that is the urn, now foster child of silence and slow time. At the very end, he, he has the urn address Mankind, to whom thou sayest, uh, beauty is truth, truth, beauty. That is all you know on earth and all you need to know. So the urn, in turn, unusual, but poetry can do things like that. Have have an urn actually speaks back. back. But there are lots of romantic poems that do uh, exploit that triangulated address very explicitly. Um, I know Shelley's Ode to the West Wind. O wild west wind, thou breath of autumn's being.
0: And so, I mean, those examples, the urn and the west wind, they're not humans. um, And it seems, uh, having looked at some of the examples in your book, like you have a whole range of different Mm -hmm. types of addressee. Mm -hmm. So um, I'm wondering, by addressing the urn, who is obviously not a human and can't respond, yeah. you're then already cued to think about it as like a, a metaphor. Mm-hmm. Or I think, think so, about or it not literally.
2: Not not literally, certainly. Um, but also it's being animated. It's being made into something that can be addressed and that therefore acquires a certain kind of transcendental state. So it's not just that it's the speaker is addressing the urn, therefore it must stand for beauty or something like that. I mean, it does make the urn into this kind of mysterious figure that could be addressed, could be alive, could be experiencing these things that that are described in the poem.
0: Yeah. Well, can we go from the sublime to the ridiculous? Um, maybe. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a poem about soap mm-hmm. in your book uh, yes. that I found really charming, and I didn't really know what to make of it. Yes. But I'd love to hear what you think about
2: mm-hmm. it. Let's see. Okay. Yeah. Uh, The Chilean poet Pablo Neruda wrote several hundred odes um, addressing all kinds of things. Happiness, poetry, time, laziness, gratitude, life. I quote one on soap. That's what you are. Soap, pure delight, fleeting smell that slips and sinks like a blind fish in the depths of the bathtub. So
0: That's the uh, whole poem. That's
2: that's the whole poem, yes. Okay. Uh, So there you have sort of animation. The soap is not just a banal object, but something that is almost alive. And there, I think the element of animation is important. You could have written a poem that just said, the soap is slippery and slips out of my grasp. And uh, if you address the soap and tell it what it does, you do this, you do that. You're creating a certain amount of enchantment of the world is one one of the ways of talking about that that poems, uh-huh. do. poems things of to sort life. do bring things to life, give us a world that's not just a, a world of physical uh, inanimate objects, but suffuses them with certain mystery and animation. There are critics who have argued that that's a, an extremely important aspect of lyric poetry, which I, I agree, but I do want, want to say that lots of poems are also skeptical about this bringing to life. They may simultaneously address something and then express skepticism about whether this can be pulled off, especially if you have poems that, you know, ask time to stop or, you know, ask things in the universe to do things that they're obviously not going to do, then the poem is likely to register that in in some way.
0: Yeah, no, it's really, I mean, because that kind of address feels like, at least now, is such a sort of, uh, I don't know, a cliche or at least like a real convention When we think of the poetic, you know, it's like, Mm -hmm, oh, Mm -hmm. you know, yeah, Mm -hmm. like an ode to a nightingale or to an urn, Mm -hmm. Um, but actually it's something much more complicated going on than just a poem addressed to that object.
2: I think so. Um, I do like those examples because they do seem to me to illustrate qualities that are sort of distinctive of lyric poetry. You don't get novels doing that sort of thing, whereas poems are able to address all kinds of things. And so even poems that aren't addressing uh, weird objects like urns and nightingales do still seem to me to participate in this aspect of poetry, which I'm calling triangulated address, addressing an audience by addressing other things. One example that's sort of hard to fit into any of the categories we've been talking about, which is a very powerful and seductive poem, It's a very short poem by Keats called This Living Hand, which is really almost eerie. It does involve a you, uh, a sort of indeterminate you, but I think the reader is almost forced to occupy the position of that you. Because it's short, I can recite the whole thing. This living hand, now warm and capable of earnest grasping, would, if it were cold and in the silence of the tomb, so haunt thy days and chill thy dreaming nights, that thou wouldst wish thy own heart dry of blood, so in my veins red life might stream again, and now be conscience calmed. See, here it is, I hold it towards you. So the hand, presumably the hand that's writing the poem holding this towards us and, and predicting that um, if he were dead, which, of course, he is, uh, we would feel uh, you know, guilty that we are still alive and he's dead and we might even be able to sacrifice ourselves in order that blood might flow in his veins again and that he would be alive. And then he sort of challenges us by, see, here it is, Here's, <laughs> as if he were not dead. It's a very eerie effect.
0: And it, it takes me back to what you were saying earlier about... Um the sort of the blurring of you as an audience mm-hmm, reader yep. into both the speaker and the addressee, mm-hmm, because yes. in that one, on the one hand, you're doing that kind of reanimating mm-hmm, in the process mm-hmm, of yeah, reading it, yes, like making it making, making, alive again, life. but then you're also in the position of the addressee, mm-hmm. having this hand reach out to you. Mm-hmm, yeah, so it's yeah, very yeah, kind yes. of eerie. And yeah, mm-hmm, yeah. Um, and
2: if you're reading it, you're sort of tempted to say, and. You know, this this living hand is as if, as if the hand were yours. Here it is, I hold it towards you. It's very complicated and, and mysterious little poem.
0: Yeah, and I think this idea of this triangle, the triangulated mm-hmm. address, yeah. it sort of, it gives us three points mm-hmm. that we can kind of think about while mm-hmm. reading this poem, yeah. but it's yeah. not as though those are distinct, like mm-hmm. the poem is sort of encouraging us to move between mm-hmm. them.
2: Yes, yes, certainly.
0: I have one last yes. question. Yes, indeed. Um, what is the strangest object you've ever seen addressed in a poem? <laughs>
2: uh, that's a hard hard one. Um, <laughs> uh, Kenneth uh, Koch has a, a very weird collection called um, "New Addresses." Each one is addressed to something, and he's really going out of his way to think of them as, as, as outrageous as he can. So mm. uh, uh, the First World War is one thing. You were big, he says. I think. And he was saying, you, the First World War. You, you, the First World War big. is big. And there's wow. psychoanalysis, which he says, you were, you, you were useless to my psychoanalysis. <laughs> but, you know, Wonderful. Uh, and one is, uh, one is actually addressed to his old addresses, to his places he used to live. So, an you, address. Yes, to an to, address. To an address you know, 425 Riverside Avenue, you were great, that sort of thing. Anyway, that's a very weird collection. Just a tour de force, the whole
0: book. Yeah, it sounds... Imagining how many
2: different things he can address
0: poems to. Wow, that's wonderful. Well, Jonathan Culler, thank you very much. Thank you. It's been a pleasure talking to you.
1: That's it for this episode. For links to books mentioned in our discussion, plus further reading, visit our website, howtoreadpodcast.com. You can also listen to a bonus clip of Jonathan discussing how a Robert Frost poem illustrates the differences between reading poetry and reading novels.
0: To hear about our latest episodes and news, follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at howtoreadnow. This episode was recorded by Jess Angerbretson and was produced by me, Milan Talunen,
1: And by me, Olivia Branscombe. Our theme music is by Pottington Bear. Special thanks to Columbia University for its support, and thank you for listening.